Welcome to the Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. As we start this new series called Unbeatable Hope, this message is bonkers, okay? It's just straight bonkers. And I say that because when I'm at my best, I'm not writing messages. I'm just writing what I hear, okay? It's almost like I, and don't take this literally, it's almost like I feel the Lord just hands me a, a scroll or a script and just goes here. And with this message, it was like he kind of handed it to me with that stank face look on his face. You know what I'm saying? Like he just handed it to me like, I was like, okay. And then when he gave me the title, I thought, it's over. It's, it's over, Lord. Jesus is coming back next week. It's over. Because when I started to get ready for this series on hope, and you're going to hear this phrase, unbeatable hope, for the next several decades in our church. Because we, this is what God's called us to talk about, is the hope we have in Jesus. And so as I started preparing to teach on the unbeatable hope we have in Jesus... I, I thought, okay, I'm going to go this direction, this direction, this direction. And then he misdirected, used some misdirection, and gave me this first message. And the title of this message is Hope's Supposed Rival. Hope's Supposed Rival. And if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. And if you're one of those uh, page turners, you love to, to mark the places, you can put a marker in Genesis chapter 3. And if you're like really trying to get off to a good start in 2020, you can turn to a third place and like put a piece of paper or your finger in there because your Bible doesn't have that many markers. You can go to Matthew 4, all right? So 1 John 2, Genesis 3, Matthew chapter 4. 1 John 2 is our text, all right? So let's read it together starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Okay, these are the three points right here. These things are not of the Father, but they are of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it is passing away as well. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now... When we see in scripture the word world, there are three options, three meanings for the word world in scripture. Here's the first one, physical earth, okay? When you read in the Bible and and you see the word world, it can be uh, speaking of the physical earth on which we live, okay? A second meaning for the word world in scripture is mankind, humanity. So when it says the world, it's talking about all the people, right? But there's a third meaning. When you read the word world in scripture, it can mean a system. And and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The world is Satan's system for opposing the work of Christ on the earth. 1 John chapter 2 is not talking about physical earth or humanity, It's talking about Satan's system, that which he uses to oppose the work of Christ on the earth. 1 John 5, verse 19 says, we know that we, speaking of believers in Christ, are from God, and the whole world is under the power of the evil one. 
okay? So we see that Satan has a system, a way of operating. The world is a system of values and goals from which God is excluded. Are you getting the picture, okay? Here's what you need to understand about a believer. A Christian is a member of the human world. We're a member of the human race, right? Okay, we live in the physical world, but we are not a part of the spiritual world. All right? Here's another way to say this. And I know there, there are a lot of one-liners here that you're filling in in the notes, but I'm just trying to lay the framework before we get into the three temptations that Satan uses as a part of the world system. Okay? Here's what you need to understand. The world is not a natural habitat for a believer. The world, this world in which we live and the worldly system is not a natural habitat for a believer. How do we know that? Philippians 3 verse 20 tells us a believer's citizenship is in heaven. We were not made for this world. Okay. Now, before I get into the three things, I want to draw your attention to something really important in 1 John 2, okay? In 1 John 2, God is communicating that it is impossible to have a love for the worldly system and a love for God at the same time, okay? He says, if you have the love of the world then you do not have the love of the Father in you. This is really important to understand because I think some of us think we can dabble in the worldly system and still have the love of God. It, it, it is really impossible. That's the best way to say it. And here's why. The heart of man is narrow. It cannot contain both loves. God created our hearts to have, Jesus said it like this. He said, you can't love or serve God and mammon. You have to pick one. Why? Because the heart of man was created to be narrow. We were created to love God and God alone and no one at that level in the same way in which we love the Father. Now, I want to show you because 1 John 2 really teaches us that this is the devil's playbook. All right? Now, Scripture says that we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the unseen world, right? So we need to understand our opponent's playbook. We don't need to be overly impressed. We don't, we don't need to be afraid of him. Christ has given us the victory. But we do need to understand his playbook, okay? 1 John chapter 2 tells us the enemy's playbook. And here's, here's what's crazy about the devil, okay? Too many of us give him credit for being some kind of a genius, Satan is no genius. He has a limited mind. Here's what really concerns me about too many believers. They think that the devil has all knowledge. Only God has all knowledge. Only God is all-knowing, okay? Satan is a created being, all right? He's not creative. Here's what that means. He's highly predictable, okay? When you understand his playbook, you will see it all throughout scripture. This is what he's been doing since the beginning. Now, if you put a marker in Genesis chapter three, flip over there, I wanna show you in one verse, all three of the things 1 John 2 talks about. Now remember, Genesis chapter three, what happens? 
Adam and Eve's sin, right? It's the first sin of humanity. But I want you to see what led up to the sin, all right? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, okay, that, that's the lust of the flesh. We're going to talk about it in a minute. Human craving, physical craving. She saw it was good for food, sustenance, that it was pleasant to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. And a tree desirable to make one wise. Okay, remember, Satan said, hey, you know what God's really afraid of? He's afraid that if you eat of that fruit, you're going to be just like him. Okay, he was appealing to her pride. All three, look what happens. All three happen, then she took of its fruit and she ate. Okay, flip over to Matthew chapter 4, if you put a marker there. Or you can just listen to it. What happens in Matthew chapter 4? Okay, so in Genesis 3, we see what happens with the first Adam, with Adam and Eve. In Matthew chapter 4, we see the same playbook with what Scripture calls the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, I want you to see how predictable the devil is. And here's why. So that it will become more obvious in your personal life when he's trying to run these plays. And when it becomes obvious to you, you can stop them. Okay? But when you're ignorant of them, he can run you over using them. All right? Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. Now, when the tempter, Satan, came to Jesus, he said... If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Remember, we talked about this last week. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The Bible says he was extremely hungry. How many of you, after five days of fasting, whatever you're fasting, that could be said of you. I am extremely hungry right now. How many of you are fasting coffee? Okay, stay away from those people. (laughs) Noel is fasting coffee, and and she was helping deliver the baby at 4 a.m. this morning and is down at the Tempe campus, got up at 6 a.m., and she's fasting coffee. So just keep like a 10-foot circle away from anybody fasting coffee right now. Satan says to Jesus, he says, hey, I see that you're hungry in essence. If you're the son of God, why not just whip up some bread from these stones? He's appealing to the lust of the flesh, and we know Jesus didn't give in. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his charge over you. Okay? This, this is the third temptation, all right, of the three, the pride of life. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from this high place, because scripture says, if it's really you, the angels will just scoop you up and take care of you. He's going after pride, Okay? But we know Jesus doesn't respond in pride. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. What is he appealing to? The lust of the eyes, right? Okay. He, Satan is extremely predictable. He hasn't changed his play calling since day one. All right? So let's walk through these three temptations, these strategies that Satan uses against every person on the earth, not just believers, but every person as a part of the worldly system, all right? Here's point number one, lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Here's a a fairly simple definition of that, but a little long. This is where the world 
appeals to our godly appetites and tempts us to satisfy them in unhealthy and even ungodly ways. The lust of the flesh is when the world appeals to our godly appetites and tempts us to satisfy them in unhealthy and even ungodly ways. Now, God gives us desires, okay? Every one of us were born with God-given desires. And there are many of them, but I'll just use four as an example, okay? Hunger, thirst, rest, and then I'll throw in one just to, to make sure everybody's awake, sex, okay? Four desires, God-given. I'm throwing in number four because too many people think that that can be a bad desire. Here's what you need to understand about any desire God gives. It's good, but it can become bad. How does a good godly desire become bad? Here's how. How you meet it, how you feed it, how you satisfy it. In other words, think about it like this. Hunger is not a bad desire, but gluttony is. Gluttony is the way Satan operates in the worldly system to say, if you crave it, give it. If you want it, give it to yourself. As much of it as you want, okay? Hunger is a good desire. Gluttony is hunger gone too far, okay? Thirst, thirst is a good desire. Drunkenness is not. Drunkenness is taking a good desire that God gave too far, way too far. You'll notice that one of the easiest ways to tell if it's the worldly system in operation is the word excess, okay? It's one of the tricks to really be able to discern if the enemy is trying to tempt me because it always involves excess. Rest is a good thing. Laziness is not. Laziness is rest, gone too far, right? Sex, a good thing. God created sex. You might freak out when you hear that word in church. You don't need to. God created it. Sex is a God-given desire that many have. Sex outside of God's boundaries, not a good thing, okay? God gives us desires, but Satan loves to try and twist those godly desires and get us to meet or satisfy those desires in unhealthy and even ungodly ways. Now, here's the big question I want to answer with all three of these areas, okay? How does a believer overcome these things? Now, let me just say why I said in your notes, how does a believer overcome these things? Am I alienating people who do not yet know Jesus? Not at all. If you're here or at Tempe or watching this online in whatever form, and you're not a believer in Jesus yet, you need to understand, it's impossible to overcome these three temptations by yourself in your own strength. It is only through Christ who strengthens me that I and you can do all things, okay? So how does someone overcome these things? Well, step one is become a believer in Jesus Christ in whom I can do all things as he strengthens me, right? But how does a believer specifically overcome these things? Well, let's talk about lust of the flesh. Two answers. First, enjoy what God gives. The way to overcome the lust of the flesh is to enjoy everything God gives. First Timothy 6, 17. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. 
Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need, period. Isn't God a great provider? He richly gives us all we need, period. That's not where it stops, is it? God richly gives you all you need. Why? Read it for me. Why are, why are we so afraid to say that? Why as believers do we think we have to be miserable? Jesus died to give us the abundant life. You think heaven is going to look like hell? Satan's got too many believers all jacked up into thinking that the, the best way to be godly is to be miserable. You, you know one of the best ways to be godly? Have joy. It's a fruit of the spirit. Joy. Why when I say, read the last three words of 1 Timothy 6, 17, people are like, I don't want to say it out loud. <laughs> For our enjoyment. We're not supposed to be looking like we're having fun. Well, let me let the cat out of the bag as the senior pastor of this church. And this might stretch some of you theologically. But if there is a pleasure on this earth that Jesus says, not only am I allowed to experience, but that I should experience, here's what I want you to know. Not only am I going to experience that pleasure, I'm going to enjoy it. Some of you actually think that's a bad thing. Preston's gonna go off the deep end chasing pleasures. So before you start judging me too much, let me give you answer number two to how a believer overcomes the lust of the flesh. Enjoy what God gives in the manner in which he says to enjoy it. Listen, if Jesus says there's something I can enjoy, a pleasure on this life, this earth is a tough place to live. Jesus said that in John 16. And if there's a pleasure Jesus says is good for you to enjoy, you should enjoy it. But you should enjoy it in the manner in which God says it should be enjoyed. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you, speaking to believers, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You, believer, do not belong to yourself. This is one of the fastest ways to overcome the lust of the flesh. When you crave something, and the way you want to satisfy that craving is beyond the boundary God has put in place. We need to remember, I don't belong to myself. Here's another way to say that. I'm not here for me. I need to check with my owner. Is this good for me? No, Preston, it's not. Okay. Shouldn't do it. Can you imagine if we ask God if we should do things before we do things, how much better life would be because we would stop doing things before we did bad things? Does that even make sense? Listen, I don't belong to me. I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit, okay? So when I want to satisfy a physical craving beyond God's boundary, it is wisdom to step back and say, God, is this good for me? And when he says no, wisdom stands down. Here's the second point, lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. 
Lust of the eyes is the desire to immediately have that which we see. So this isn't just speaking about a craving, it's also speaking to covetousness, all right? So it, it talks about that inner desire that when I see something great, I just have to have it immediately and can even go to the point where I take it when I shouldn't have it. Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, it covers the story in Joshua 7 of a man named Achan. Achan stole some stuff and the entire nation of Israel was punished because Achan had stolen and hidden what he stole. But I want you to see, that's what Achan did. I want you to see his why. Why did Achan steal what he stole and thus saw Israel punished for his sin? Why did he do it? He gives us in his own words in Joshua 7 verse 21 his why. Among the plunder, Achan says, I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 silver coins, and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. I wanted them so much, so badly, that I took them. Okay, this is the lust of the eyes right here. Many of the greatest sins in Scripture started with the eyes. Here's what that means. Your eyes are a really big deal. A really big deal. Now, here's one of the problems when we talk about the lust of the eyes. You put lust and eyes together, and what do most people immediately think of? Pornography. Now, I understand that that's a bit of an epidemic in our day, but lust of the eyes is not just talking about pornography. You can go to the mall and fall prey to the lust of the eyes. Shopping through your favorite store or going through your social media account and seeing somebody has something and, and something just goes off on the inside of you and you go, I want that, I'm gonna get that. And then that little voice inside, probably the Holy Spirit, you hear whisper say, but you don't have any money right now. <laughs> and that really loud voice on the inside, which is probably not the Holy Spirit says, but I have a credit card, okay? The lust of the eyes is not just about pornography. It's anything you see that you covet and want to take. Your eyes are a really big deal. Now, in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks a good deal about your eyes. He says something really strong in Matthew 5 verse 27. Jesus says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, Jesus is addressing a little bit of a problem. He's saying, let's just use this as an example. Uh, because for those of you who are believers, uh, you may look around at your unsaved peers, friends, family members, and they're having physical affairs on their spouses, and you're just struggling, let's say, with pornography. And the devil whispers in your ear, well, at least you're not touching and you don't think it's a big deal. Jesus says, here's what you need to understand. Preston, if you even look at a woman with lust, you need to understand, it's as though you committed a physical affair with her in your heart. What's he saying? Preston, you're bad? No, he's saying your eyes are a big deal. Now, Matthew chapter six, Jesus uses a little bit more of his sweet tone okay, to talk about your eyes. 
Verse 22, he says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. If not kept in check, your eyes can get you into a ton of trouble. Now, let's ask and answer the question. How does a believer overcome the lust of the eyes? Two things. Number one, refuse to look. Refuse to look. Psalm 101 verse 3. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. Such a great verse. I will refuse to look at anything vile or vulgar. Now, question. In a fallen world filled with vileness and vulgarity, how is it even possible not to see vileness and vulgarity? Well, here's what you have to remember. This psalm does not say, don't see. It says, don't look. There's a big difference. The New King James translates Psalm 101 verse 3 like this. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. There's a difference between seeing and staring. It reminds me of a time a couple months ago when I was preaching at a church in San Francisco. I'd done the Sunday morning service and I was headed back to the church uh, for the Sunday night service. And uh, I was in the back of an Uber and we were on this main street in San Francisco and, and I'm kind of in tourist mode. I'm looking around, this place seemed really cool and the shops were cool and the people were cool and everybody was just cool vibe. And so I'm just kind of looking at everything, you know. And we get to the intersection where we're going to make a left-hand turn to go down to the school where the church presently meets. And in the middle of the intersection, as he's waiting for the cars uh, to pass, often this corner of my eyesight, I see a, a couple of dozen people protesting, and these three or so dozen people were completely buck naked. Okay, wasn't expecting that. And the signs that we're holding, they were protesting the legalization of hallucinogenic drugs. Okay, no judgment, no judgment, just didn't see it coming. Here's what refusing to look looks like. When my eyes make contact, when they see the probably sweet but completely naked people protesting on the side of the street, what do those eyes do? Look this way. I saw it, but it didn't stare. Now, am I perfect? No. No one's ever been perfect except Jesus. The rest of us do our best. But when I'm at my best, what it looks like is, whoop. I refuse to look, I refuse to stare. I might accidentally see something, but I'm not going to stare at something I see. This is what you need to understand about the power of a stare. Sin quite often starts with a stare. So when you see, don't let it turn into a stare. Refuse to look. Number two, how do you overcome? The lust of the eyes. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. 
Don't just refuse to look. Go well beyond that and look at something good. And the best thing you could look at is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Now, before I read you verse 2, there's an implied question here. How do we make sure we don't trip over the sin that so easily ensnares us? And how do we run our race with endurance? Verse 2 answers this implied question. It says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. You see, it's impossible for your eyes to get you in trouble when they're glued to the teacher. Here's the picture I feel like I got from the Lord related to this. Subpoint. The world, the physical world we live in, and the worldly system we are trying to navigate our way through is like a minefield. And you can't see all of the mines. All of the mines are covered up with fruit. They look good, they're appealing, they're desirable, but you can't tell there's a mind beneath the fruit. And how does one navigate through a minefield where they can't even see where the mines are? Here is the picture. Keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus is like this. He is standing in front of you in this minefield and he says, okay, we're going to make it through this, but I need you to look at me. And he starts walking backwards like a godly show-off through the minefield, like a little swagger. Like, yeah, I know where I'm going. Oh, left right here. There's a mine right there. Preston, right here. Right here, don't look at that fruit. Look at me, keep your eyes on me. Now, here's what you need to understand. That sounds a little bit controlling if you don't know Jesus personally. But let me help you understand something. The reason Jesus says, fix your eyes on me is not because he struggles with jealousy. It's because he's obsessed with my safety and yours too. He says, oh, keep your eyes right here, follow me. Follow me. Nope, nope. Preston, don't look right there. Right here. Keep it on me. That's a mine. That's a big one. That could cost you your marriage. Oh, careful. That one could cost you your job. Right here. Right here. Don't just refuse to look. Fix your eyes on Jesus, and you will dominate the devil when he tries to tempt you via the lust of the eyes. Here's point number three. The pride of life. The pride of life. Here's a a fairly good definition of pride. Pride is an overconfidence that makes us lose the notion that we are dependent upon God. Pride is an overconfidence that makes us lose the notion that we are dependent upon God. Now, I personally believe that this is Satan's favorite tool or temptation to use. The first two are the easy ones. That's low-hanging fruit for the devil. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. He just goes after a craving and coveting. But pride, I believe, is his favorite, and here's why. Pride is the reason he got kicked out of heaven. Let me show you in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. This is speaking about what happened when Lucifer fell from heaven. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground. 
you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. This is what Lucifer said. Pride. Now, he frequently likes to try and get us to dabble in pride because pride is the fastest way to walk towards declaring independence from God because pride is a spirit that says, I got this. I don't need you. I got this, okay? This is what Satan is trying to do to every human being. You can do this without him. Your best life involves not being controlled by him. You need to be independent from him. So Satan will try and use all kinds of different things to get pride to creep into your everyday life. I remember years ago, uh, right after Holly and I first got married, uh, which we celebrate 19 years tomorrow. Yeah. The girl hadn't gotten sick of me. Either that or she's, she's just afraid to let me go because, you know, it would kind of be a big deal. So I just keep chasing her around and telling her she's amazing and, and uh, I hope she wants to spend another 19 years with me because I'm kind of obsessed with that girl. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. Now I'm completely distracted because I'm thinking about my wife. I don't even know what am I talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right after we got married, I started going down memory lane just now. Like, I love that girl. Look, look at you. Uh, right after we got married, we had a lot of school debt, and we didn't have much at all. And we had a friend who owned a particular car dealership. And it was uh, most would consider it a luxury car dealership. And, and he said, hey, I want to help you guys get one of our cars. And so he did. And, and to this day, it's the nicest car I've ever driven. Okay. And one day I was pulling up to the administrative offices at Gateway in Dallas, and it, it was early. There were very few people there. Um, yeah, it was probably an hour, almost an hour before office hours kicked in. And, and so I was kind of by myself. I got out of the car, and I'm not exaggerating. This is how it went down. I shut the car door, and I start walking towards the, the office entrance, and I was doing this. I mean, I was strutting like a peacock. Incidentally, one of the things I've learned about strutting peacocks is those are the ones typically most afraid that anyone will take view of what's beneath their feathers. And that's why they strut like peacocks, to distract you from what they're afraid you'll actually see is the truth about them. In other words, the more I brag about me, the more I'm letting you know I don't understand the God in me. So I'm, I'm just kind of strutting like an arrogant peacock on the way to the front door of the office. And I felt the Lord say, what is this? What are you doing? And I said, I'm just grateful for this car. I mean, this is just a special car. I, I'm just grateful. He said, son, this is not gratitude. This is greed. Not owning the car the way I was seeing the car. He said, this is not appreciation. This is arrogance. You actually think that your identity is richer because of this car. And it only proves, Preston, that you don't understand your value to me. He said, think about it like this. 
30 years from now, this car is going to be in a junkyard. And if you still own the car in that season, will you be strutting like this peacock then? I said, of course not. He said, then don't do it now. Don't do it now. This card does not increase your value. Nothing can increase your value beyond what my son did for you on the cross that day. Nothing. And here's the practical lesson. Never ever, this is part of what is being said in 1 John 2, that the world and its lust will pass away. It's passing away. Never be too proud or put too much stock in what will pass away. But the devil tries to get us to latch onto the things that are passing away. Now, how does a believer overcome the pride of life? Answer number one, understand your identity. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you, as a believer in Jesus, are complete in him. Again, if you're here watching this online or in Tempe, and you don't know Jesus personally yet, and you feel incomplete, there's a reason. It's not because you're bad or you're weak. It's because I was incomplete before Christ. We are only complete in Christ. So if you feel that little bit of something tugging on you saying, I just feel incomplete, and you've tried to fill that void with this or this or this, and nothing's working, there's a reason why only Jesus can fill that void. You're simply incomplete, and so was I until I met Jesus, in whom I and every other believer is complete. Here's the big deal as it relates to bragging and your identity. When you brag about you, it only reveals you don't understand you are complete in him. You are complete in Christ Jesus. Stop bragging about yourself. But let me say something that might surprise you, but don't stop bragging. And that brings us to the second answer to how someone overcomes the pride of life. Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, which trust me, I do, boast only about the Lord. Okay, Here's what you need to know about me. I am a bragger, okay? When I was a kid, I struggled really badly with bragging about myself. And the reason is, because I, the reason I bragged about myself is I was very insecure. When you brag about yourself, you're just revealing you're very insecure about yourself. Because when you're really secure in who you are in Christ, you don't need to talk about all that stuff. You can just rest in him, okay? But here, I got into a lot of trouble for bragging as a child. And now I look back and go, I should have never gotten in trouble for bragging. I was just bragging about the wrong thing. Here, here's the way I would say it. You and I were born to brag. We are born to brag. And I'll prove it to you in the Bible. Psalm 8 verse 2, speaking of God. God, you have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Okay, believers need to brag. We just need to brag about the one who is worthy of our bragging, and that's not me. That's not you. Scripture says, if you want to brag, go for it. How awesome is that? That God says, hey, Preston, listen, you struggle with bragging since you were a kid. 
I'm not going to tell you to stop bragging. I'm just telling you to stop bragging about yourself. I want you to wake up every day for the rest of your life wandering up and down the streets of Scottsdale bragging about me. Son, that's what I want. When you boast, make sure you're boasting in me. How do you overcome the pride of life? You take pride in your God, not in your stuff, not in your position, not in the power you think you have. When you brag about yourself, here's the problem. You have to back it up. When you brag about you, you have to back it up. But when you brag about the Lord, you are painfully reminding your enemy who is backing you up. That is awesome. So when you boast, boast in the Lord. Now, remember at the beginning of the message, I said that the world is not a natural habitat for a believer. Do you remember that? Okay, let me illustrate that. Water is not a natural habitat for man. True or false? True, right? You don't have gills, and if you want to see if water is a natural habitat for you, put some weights on the bottom of your ankles, go down into a big pool of water and see how long you last. Okay, please don't literally do that, all right? I'm trying to prove a point, right? You were not made for water. One of the ways you know water is not a natural habitat for you is in order to endure it or spend prolonged periods of time in it, and I mean literally under water, you need supplemental equipment, right? You need an oxygen tank. Okay, let me show you something. First John chapter 4, verse 4. Because if you get a little bit overwhelmed that as a believer in Christ, you're called to navigate this worldly system, you need to remember God's given you supplemental oxygen and equipment. First John 4, 4. But you belong to God, my dear children. You've already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the lowercase s spirit who lives in the world. Were it not for the Holy Spirit, not one of us could survive in the waters of the worldly system. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, gave his Holy Spirit to dwell on the inside of every believer so that we could have the oxygen and equipment we need to successfully not just survive the waters of the worldly system, but to thrive and dominate therein. And I wanna remind you of one more thing before we wrap this up. Because I know there might be a few who start to hear about the devil's power on the earth. And you may battle a spirit of fear and so you might get a little bit overwhelmed by that. I just wanna remind you the words of Jesus in John chapter 16. This is my paraphrase, but he basically said this. As a member of this human world, living in this physical world, navigating this world system, you're gonna have trouble. It's gonna be hard. But it's almost without, like without even taking a breath, Jesus said, but take heart, 
I have overcome the world. The world has not overcome our Lord. Our Lord has overcome the world. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit as believers in Jesus, not just to navigate through this worldly system, but to dominate. Listen to me closely. When we talk about hope, the hope of every believer has a name. Its name is Jesus. And our hope has never had a rival nor an equal, never has and never will. Our hope is unbeatable, period, point blank. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at gatewaylife.com. Have a great week.